Good evening, and welcome to the Best of Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Bridget Bright, and thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, we bring you the best five stories from this fall. We'll have stories about local topics, like Buffalo Street Books' Drag Queen Story Hour, all the way to issues that touch the nation, like the current state of cemeteries. We'll also have lighthearted stories, like our feature on human touch and connection, and we will listen to the latest episode of our series, Six Degrees. But first, we bring you a story about what it is like to move to Ithaca from abroad. WICB News Production Director Jay Bradley spoke to community members about a program designed to help those who are new to the area, specifically people who did not grow up speaking English. Imagine leaving your home to live somewhere where almost no one spoke your language. Everything from going to the doctor to getting groceries would have roadblocks no matter where you go. And with Ithaca being a place that many people come to from all over the world, this can be the reality for many people right here. Patricia Ginebra came from the Dominican Republic when her husband started to work at Cornell, and not being able to communicate impacted everything she did. When I moved to Ithaca five years ago, I didn't speak anything in English, and my husband worked all day. For a few months, I was in my house alone. I don't like to <laughs> go outside because I feel stressed because I didn't speak English. But thanks to a group of ESL, that's English as a Second Language, teachers, Patricia and over a hundred others from all over the world are learning and improving how to communicate with people here through a new program called Open Doors English. The nonprofit program first came into being this September and now does classes four days a week out of the First Presbyterian Church in downtown Ithaca, providing all types of adult English learners with the tools they need to connect to the world around them. Over the years, we've really heard that people who have children or, or people that come can feel really isolated if they're not able to work in this community and they need the English to get along in their daily lives. That was Hilary Boyer, the project co-director and student services coordinator for Open Doors English. Those at the program knew that there was a big demand for this, and now it has about 120 students, ranging from absolute beginners to those who just want to improve. And while what they're doing isn't new, the way it's done now is. All of us who are working now at Open Doors English used to work for TST BOCES in their ESL program. Last year, BOCES started to change that program into something the teachers didn't want to be a part of, restricting further who would be able to take it and what those students would be getting from it. They slowly changed the program to change how the, what the teachers were teaching, and it sort of culminated in them um, making the program only work-related. So the only people that were allowed to come to the program were people that could work in this country and that were planning to work in the country. 
and then they told the teachers that what they needed to teach had to be 100% work-related. The seven teachers knew that this stripped-down program was not something they wanted to be a part of. So in February, they kicked out about half the students. Uh, they told them they were no longer eligible for the program. And we quit as a group on February 8th. So over most of this last year, they got to work. A week later, we started working as volunteers. And then really over the summer, we set up this new program. We were able to get the same space back that we had before. And now, um, and on September 9th, we opened classes. Now being their own entity as a nonprofit through the Center for Transformative Action in Ithaca, they can open up the program to all sorts of people, regardless of their ability to work. We can take anybody into the program that wants to come. And they can now adjust the course to what the students need. Everything in the classroom is now geared toward helping the students, and this often comes from exposure to real-world situations that the test-driven BOCES program did not often allow them to do. We're able to really target the learning to what the students most need to learn without worrying about whether or not it will increase their score on a particular test. The teachers are all very experienced and qualified, making it something that they and many of the students feel is worthwhile, leading to not only them, but many of the students like Ginebra leaving the BOCES program for these teachers. When I started studying English, it was better for me because I can communicate now. Not perfect, but every day better and better. About half of the students are permanent residents in Ithaca, who might be working here or have a spouse working here, but they themselves don't have much English. The other half are temporary, often because of connections to Cornell. Overall, there's about 33 countries represented there, and Liz Sussman, one of the ESL teachers and co-director of the program, says that with less restrictions now through Open Doors English, they can address this diversity and their needs as a program far better. So having our own program where we can really zero in on the needs of our program and our teachers and then find ways to support each other, and that feels really good. It feels very human. The program is special for another reason, though. It's accessibility for all types of people, working or not, while also being affordable through a sliding scale they use to determine fees, has created an environment where people from all over the world, of different classes, race, nationality, wealth, or whatever else, have formed bonds and become friends. It's been one of the delights of this program to watch people interact who would not otherwise uh, meet each other in life. Because in a place like this, all these different people find themselves on an equal level. It's a really unique setting where students from really every background imaginable sit together around the same classroom. And so you have university professors interacting with refugees um, who maybe have limited formal education or limited opportunity for formal education. And they are helping each other and talking to each together and sharing ideas about how to solve problems they both have in Ithaca. Um, and it's just very sweet. And it's not lost on the students. In this program, I know many different cultures. It's very nice to know people from another country, different to my country. I have many friends now. It's all part of a vision that first started with another member of ESL at BOCES, 
who was fired when they started to restrict the program, Julie Coulomb. She had been really a tireless advocate for immigrants and for English as second language speakers um, for 30 years in Ithaca. And she, she died in March of last year. So when she died, there was a fund established by her family, and they um, generously gave it to us to start our school. So that was the reason we could um, afford to rent this space. We think about her every day, and we feel like this program represents who she was and um, all the heart that went into caring for immigrants in, um, in Ithaca. Their issue now, though, is finding funding to keep the program what it is. One of the big concerns that we have is um, how we can possibly get enough money to um, keep the program going when it's really unrealistic to ask our students to pay um, the amount that it would cost, um, which would be about $800 for a four-week period per student if we were to pay the teachers what they, ought, what they ought to be paid and um, to manage the program. Since they're not relying on students for their income, they have to seek other means to keep it going. And it hasn't been easy. It's all uh, funding that we get through um, our own fundraising, grants that we've written, um, and donations from people. So the teachers are working for less than half of what they were paid for paid before and three of us are working for free um, we just volunteered to work for this period of time to see if we could get on our feet as a program they have done things to make it more visible in the community like working with last month's many events and exhibits downtown through the how did we get here series by the people's pop-up project and a recent ribbon cutting event but they won't stop pushing because they know it's worth it. This is our make it or break it year, but on the whole, we feel so happy to be doing this. Um, we love having the freedom to structure the program and the classes the way that uh, we know best meets the needs of our students. Opportunities to donate or volunteer to Open Doors English can be found on their website, opendoorsenglish.org, and they can also be found on Facebook. I know that I make mistakes when I speak, but um, I think I can do everything that I need. Mm -hmm. I can go to, I can to talk with my doctor. I like to have friends. I like to uh, to go outside. I can do everything. For WICB News. I'm Jay Bradley. WICB correspondent Jess Dresch found a community member who has a non-traditional profession as a professional cuddler. This leads Jess to think about how we as people depend on our interactions with others for our own survival. And in the world of technology, how we might not be getting enough of it. You know when we sit next to someone on the subway? Their knee might graze our leg, or their hand touches our shoulder while they take off their scarf. Sorry is the word that almost always shortly follows. Translation, 
Sorry, I just touched you. Sorry, my skin felt your skin. Like a violation or wrongdoing was just performed. But what if society knew how important touch really was? Research shows that platonic touch and cuddling calms cardiovascular stress, reduces blood pressure, and releases the love hormone oxytocin. And now there's a whole touch industry. I spoke to a professional cuddler about what it's like when strangers come together to embrace in sudden intimacy. Here's Allison Rollins. You could ask your boss for a raise the same way you could ask a participant at a cuddle party for a shoulder rub. And that detachment from the outcome and the focus on what specifically you want, and you know, it, it's an exercise that comes into the individual so that you can identify what it is that you want and really why it is that you want that. Before this episode, I told my boyfriend about the health benefits of cuddling and platonic touch. It rocked his world. Had he succumbed to the pressure of masculinity and learned to fear touch outside of our long-distance relationship? He's excited about this new approach. And to showcase this new excitement, I asked him to hug a random stranger. Okay, we're looking for somebody to hug. Somebody at the RHO. Oh, oh, this guy. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Can I give you a hug? Why? Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. for a radio show. Oh, yeah, cool, cool. no problem. <laughs> Thank you. Is society today touching less than before? And how much of it is a cultural thing? Well, let's go back in time. It's the 1960s, and psychologist Sidney Girard goes out to study couples in coffee shops all over the world. His findings? In the span of one hour, couples in Puerto Rico touched 180 times, compared to Paris, 110 times, and in Florida, an astonishing two times. But what about today? Is technology and social media planting itself right in the way of our platonic touch? There's no scientific data to show a link between growing technology and less touch, but Tiffany Field, a touch specialist, went around airports in Florida to observe people interacting. No one was touching. No napping on a loved one's shoulder or hugging, just phones and screens. It's no wonder cuddle parties have blossomed all over Europe, Australia, and the U.S. They're filling a void. When I run a cuddle party event, I expect there to be strangers that don't know each other. And so there's a number of activities and there are several rules. Uh, one rule in particular is that you can always change your mind. Um, and there's other of the rules that we go over in those events. Really create a container where I feel that what's being offered is very safe. So we start with the hugging game where you can ask for and say yes or no to as many different hugs as you want with the people who are there. So it really depends on who's 
there, but I found the groups of people at a cuddle party are, you know, maybe not so open at first with wanting to get hugs, but by the end of it, usually we end up kind of, you know, sort of sitting in a pile, exchanging light shoulder rubs or, you know, nothing too explicit. It's just, you know, it's kind of you practice asking in a very specific way for uh, freely given, reversible, informed, specific consent. So, you know, so there's this FRIES acronym. It's from Planned Parenthood. And um, we really want everybody to just be in an enthusiastic yes, because we've created this container where it's safe to express, you know, gosh, I just really like it if someone would stroke my head. And it's like, okay, wow, I'm totally willing to stroke your head. And it's no big deal. You know, it's not like um, you're not expressing kinks or fetishes. And sometimes people are like, ah, well, where do feet come in because feet are fetishized? And it really kind of depends on the attitude of uh, the person. You know, if you're asking to touch someone's feet because that's going to give you sexual pleasure, then that's not what we're going for. But if you're asking, you know, to touch someone's feet because you gave your mom foot rubs and that reminds you of home, like that might be on the table. It really, you know, it's, a, it's so case by case. Some say men experience platonic touch the least in their lives. For men, touch outside a sexual relationship is seen as effeminate, and touch with other men, gay. Sociologist C.J. Pasco studied at California high school for 18 months and interviewed students. She found that homophobic slurs were dominant along enemy and friend relations. She called this compulsive heterosexuality. To be a guy meant to prove you were straight and masculine. Would you facilitate um, a cuddle party with a with a frat? I definitely want to do that because I think that these skills of identifying what the individual wants outside of what the individual thinks is expected for performance in the sexual arena is important for guys to take ownership of and not just think, oh, you know, I have to get my my badge of honor, you know, I have to um, come of age, I have to have these experiences, and maybe what your roommate's experience that he wants aren't really something, you know, that you want. Have you noticed that most people that are coming to your cuddle parties are single men? That's definitely the case. I had one cuddle party that I I have advanced tickets, so I usually know who's coming uh, a few days beforehand. And the people who had bought tickets were all male. And all of them want to ask me, so, you know, what's the gender balance? Are there going to be other women there? And, you know, I I don't want to lie to people who ask that question directly, but I also don't want to give people the impression that my job is to gender balance the participants so that they are provided with someone of the gender that they want to cuddle with because it's not about the cuddling in the moment at the cuddle party. It's about developing the skills to take home with you to ask for more of what you want. But it's it's really 
so twisted together from our puritanical roots of American society. Um, we have a very sexualized society, but also have a taboo on sexuality and touch. So I'm just curious, how did that cuddle party pan out with all the males? So the cuddle party with all the males, I I always make a statement at the end of what we call a welcome circle. And there's a bit of copyrighted curriculum that we go over, the rules and introductions and that container that we create for the cuddle party. And at the end of that introduction, I always give people the option to leave at that time and you know get a full refund of their ticket price because the part of the freestyle cuddling happens after that. And so I had five uh, guys that came to the cuddle party and they um, two guys actually stayed after the welcome circle. So it was just uh, three guys took off um, and they're like, no, forget it. I don't want my ticket price back. But then it was just kind of like me and these other two dudes to just have a conversation for the rest of the time, which was very nice. Um, the two guys that stayed, um, they did end up kind of using me as a buffer, like sitting between them on the couch and that was fine. Um, but, you know, I think it is important to explore that it's okay to have platonic affection with people of your same gender. Maybe you don't need to know someone to give them the same effect of touch from a loved one. And maybe it's really just about being there for someone. But it's the sort of thing like, you know, if you're being treated and you want, um, you have to go to the lab to get blood work or something, you know, you could ask somebody to just come sit and hold your hand while you're in the waiting room or while they're taking your blood. But a client that I've known for a while, you know, might actually ask me to sit with them in the waiting room for a medical exam or that sort of thing, just to have somebody. It's not necessarily only about, um, you know, physical touch, but about, like, having that person to be there. Touch and be touched. Consensually, of course. But hug someone you love or someone you don't know. Either way, there's a lot to gain from reaching out and asking for touch. For WICB News, I'm Jess Dresch. Speaking of human connection, WICB correspondent Sarah Herbakowitz has been exploring the idea that every person is within six degrees of separation with everyone else. In the series Six Degrees, Sarah decides to pick up a phone book and call a random number in Tompkins County to see where it would end up. Here is the fourth episode of this series. Six Degrees of Separation is the theory that we're all only six introductions away from anyone in the world. 
paired with my belief that everyone has a story, I wanted to find the six degrees of Ithaca, New York and see how connected we all really are. The theory was first tested over half a century ago, and in today's both increasingly connected and polarized society, we could all use a refresher. So, after picking up a phone book and calling Nina the Barber, then getting referred to Kyle the World Champion Wrestler, who later directed me to Megan the Author, for my fourth degree, I was about to call Sherman the Songwriter. Hello? Hi, Sherman. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay. But before I could even start interviewing Sherman, he had a few questions of his own. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Anything you want to start with? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. But first, project of yours, is this uh, some sort of thesis? Are you, what class are you in? And how do you... Where do you want to live when you're a, a reporter? How's your Japanese? What, what do you play? I... Guitar? Wait, I have I have more questions for you. Um... Wait. I wasn't through, but... Uh, okay, <laughs> go ahead. And where, where should I start about my history? Oh, uh, you can start wherever. And then we went back to his interview graduated from Cornell. Um, I had studied uh, psychology and English. I had a double major because I had played in rock and roll bands throughout my time at Cornell. And uh, and I got back together with my band and we were having a lot of fun. I ended up writing some songs that did really well. We made some uh, records and I, I ended up writing uh, uh, about half of what I released got on the charts and wow. one song in particular became a big hit we get it almost every night every it's called dancing in the moonlight i don't know if you ever heard that i know the song yeah well anyway so um imagine you're in your 20s and you're in a band and you've written a hit song and some other hits and you're traveling around the country um Sounds like I a pretty good life. it's possible to have more fun, yeah. And so I wanted to know why everyone was dancing in the moonlight and how this song came to be. So I don't know if Megan told you. Did she tell you about my story? No. She said you have some stories to tell me, but <laughs> didn't tell me anything yeah. else. My experiences were uh, pretty interesting. It's, it occurred in the Virgin Islands. We decided one day to take a sailboat um, from St. Thomas over to uh, St. Croix. And uh, I hadn't realized it, but I fall prey to seasickness very easily. <laughs> and, and both I and my girlfriend got horribly seasick. And when we got to St. Croix, um, the rest of the guys were doing fine. We got off the boat, and I was just, you know, rolling around and Not doing horrible. too good. They're fine, they ate, and then they said, we're going back out to the boat to spend the night. I looked out in the harbor. I saw the masts swinging back and forth, you know, in the swell. And Adrian and I agreed we weren't going back out there. And uh, oh, no. Adrian said, well, don't worry about it. Let's just, we'll camp out on the beach. So we did. And uh, and that's all I remember clearly because uh, we were attacked by a gang. There were five guys who attacked us with baseball bats. Oh, my God. They fractured my face in a number of places and my ribs and dislocated a shoulder and, you know, just, I, luckily I lost, lost consciousness, but I was in the hospital in St. Croix for a while and then they had to uh, send me up to New York and re-break and reset all these facial fractures. Oh my God. And, 
and then I had this long period of uh, healing. And during that time, I couldn't really play in a band. I, you know, I had a pretty bad headache, and mm-hmm. life was not easy. But I, uh, I was writing verse, and one of the verses I wrote was, uh, <laughs> some verses, you know, about how I envisioned a, a better world, a happier place where people were uh, uh, not killing each other, but were dancing in the moonlight. But how does one very personal song get to the top charts? Yeah, well, the real, the real thing was that a bunch of the guys that I had played with at Cornell uh, went to uh, Europe. They were living in a chateau in Orgeval in France, and they were uh, they were having a lot of fun uh, writing music and playing. But the real name of the band was King Harvest. Uh, my brother had. Uh, been invited by them to come over and he drummed with them briefly uh, before he went on to work with the Orleans. So when he went over to France, he taught them Dancing in the Moonlight, which they learned to play, and then they they went in to record it. And mm. uh, yeah, I, m- I remember they were describing how they were recording in France. My friend Doc, who was the lead singer, Dave Robinson, he, uh, he said we wanted to have some you know, kind of a a little percussion track. He said, they didn't have what I wanted, so he said, I found a, a brush, a toilet brush in the bathroom, which I used uh, on, the, <laughs> on the recording. <laughs> and, uh, and then that song ultimately uh, was sold to an American company. And uh, so I always felt that I was, rewarded for uh, taking such a bummer and getting it up on the higher ground right? and uh, and seeing, envisioning a better world. And Dancing in the Moonlight was only one piece of Sherman and his brother's lives of musical harmony. My brother, Wells Kelly, was a drummer in a band that also did very well called Orleans. And Orleans had some hit songs, one's called Dance With Me, uh, dance with me I want to be your partner etc <laughs> anyway I mean I was very close with him mm-hmm. uh, we always loved writing together unfortunately Wells uh, died a rock and roll death years later he had played with Bonnie Raid and Eric Clapton and a number of bands wow. and I just I somehow didn't feel the same way about music after formally leaving the music business Sherman went back to school to become a psychotherapist I enjoyed it. I did okay for a long time. I mean, I studied psychology at Cornell, and I played in a rock and roll band. I think, I think, in, I don't know, in any work you're involved in, you kind of are getting your PhD in psychology, you know, you know, from bartending to whatever. Even through his new career, and now after retirement, Sherman keeps writing on. I just, you know, I can't stop writing. I just love it. And so that's part of my story. No, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, it is an amazing story when, when I think about it. But I still had one more important question. Is there anyone else you think I should talk to? Lots of people. I don't know. What would you like? Old, young, weird. And after some thinking, he told me about his friend Bob. Well, I have a friend named Bob. He had been in the Navy 
during the Vietnam War, and he was a pilot. When he got back to this area, he started up a charter, a Taganic Aviation, uh, chartering uh, executive jets. And he's been all over the place, flying all kinds of very uh, fancy people all over the place. And so I'd be flying forward to my next degree. It's been good fun talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much. One degree closer and one story more. For WICB News, I'm Sarah Horbakowitz. If you are just tuning in, welcome to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Bridget Bright, and tonight we are airing our best stories from the last four months. Most of us pass a cemetery every day on our routine commutes. Some people see them as creepy places to avoid, and others see them as a place to pay respect to a loved one. But mostly, I think we just pass them and don't think too much about them. WICB correspondent Jess Stretch decided to learn more about these places that we all pass. What is your name? Lauren. Haley. Okay. Lauren, have you ever held your breath when driving past the cemetery? I have. <laughs> Why? Where, where did you learn to do this? Um, I don't know. It's just been engraved in my brain since I was a child. And what would happen if you didn't hold your breath? Then the ghosts will possess you. <laughs> do you still do this? Yep, every time I pass the cemetery. Every single time? Every single time. So typically whenever I drive past the cemetery, I take a really deep breath where like, I just pray for the best. Because uh, it, it, it's paying respect for the dead and it's bad luck if you're breathing and going past the cemetery. I was, I think, seven or eight years old whenever I learned this, and I've never just not done it since. <laughs> Cemeteries are all around us. In the U.S. alone, there are 25,000. And we see them everywhere. On the way to the mall, a local soccer game, a walk to that sushi burrito food truck. But have horror movies and superstition capitalized on cemeteries in our mind? And do we see cemeteries as nothing but physical markers of our own forthcoming mortality? That they're just places of pure death? Well, I talked to some folks who scrub, study, and even dress up in cemeteries, and they seem to disagree. To them, it's the opposite. Cemeteries are actually full of life. So she's spraying the tombstone. This is with water, because she's already done a lot of uh, uh, scrubbing with the cleaning agent. Once a month, historians and cemetery enthusiasts gather to clean off old headstones in the Ithaca City Cemetery. Their attire, old blue jeans, maybe a face mask, and thick gloves. I talked to one of the historians, Julie Johnson, who has been cleaning the cemetery for years. Um, and the earliest uh, burial dates from 17, 1790s. So it's a lot to keep up. That's what the work of the Friends is, is to help the city uh, do the upkeep necessary. We're also in the process of trying to find uh, a headstone um, 
uh, the actual location of a headstone. It's been improperly put where it is, and I, I need to find the right spot for it. Uh, is, there a, is there a name on the tombstone? There is, yeah, okay. there is. Uh, her, name is her name is Emma, Emma. Uh, Emma Hans, H-A-N-C-E. And there's a wonderful database uh, on the city uh, of Ithaca's website under the cemetery that you can actually do a search and find on the map uh, where it should be located, wow. which is really helpful. Um, and sort of gives you a good general location where so it ought to be. Look at the map. And exactly, that's what I've been doing. And she's uh, a little bit far afield from where she ought to be. Uh, I wonder which, who misplaced her. Oh, that's a very good question too. Uh, the poor dear. So why would you say you personally upkeep the cemetery? Um, I, I love cemeteries, and uh, I'm not exactly sure where that started with me. Uh, as a historian and historic preservationist, uh, something about the, you know, the wonder of having all this information available to you as you just walk by uh, about local history. Uh, but I like old cemeteries. They're especially uh, of interest to me. I've visited others in the United States and, uh, and overseas. Uh, and I, I hope that someone is taking care of my great-grandparents. Okay, so I have to set the scene for you. It's a gray Sunday morning, and not the Jack Johnson banana pancakes kind of Sunday. It's gloomy and it just started to rain, and I'm in a cemetery. The trees are tall, like they're personally watching over the headstones, and their color is like if you mixed old coffee and grass together. But there's something serene about being here. And as I look around, I notice I'm standing on a fairly empty lawn, like the gravekeeper just chose not to bury anyone on this particular spot. On the city's website, most of the people buried in the Pottersfield, which is where we are now, uh, very near the Stewart Avenue entrance, entrance are infants or ch- small children. Um, so the Potter's Field is where people were, who were um, uh, indigent, uh, criminals, um, people who had no place to, else to be buried, no family, uh, were buried. So the so this specific field is called the Potter's Field. Potter's yeah. Field. So, as we're standing across Potter's Field, Joe walks over. She was the first woman I met when arriving to the cleanup crew with my recorder and clunky headphones. She's funny. Like, oh, yeah, I dug up somebody. Oh, 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 oh. how exciting. <laughs> uh, it was like total clay. So, if you're anyone so like nice. me, I thought Joe literally dug up a decomposed body. Turns out, she just meant she dug up a headstone that had sank in the mud a long time ago. She cleaned it up scrub dirt out of the lettering, and put it upright. Like this deceased person can see the world again, that there's more to life than just worms and rain. A few days prior, I was reading the Press Connects, and there were these articles about cemeteries not being maintained and what they mean to a community, and the author ended up being Broome County's former historian. His name's Gerald Smith. So I called him up and asked him a few questions to see if he felt cemeteries were really alive. Hello. Hi, Gerald. This is Jess from WICB. Hi. Hi. What would you say to someone who doesn't know much about cemeteries? Like, what is one thing that you wish people knew about cemeteries or you want people to know about them? 
the the headstones actually belonged to the people who bought the plots, and it was up to them to take care of them. But of course, there's a catch twenty two in that. In that, those people are dead, and they've been dead for a long time, and quite often the the responsibility for the care might fall on the immediate descendants who probably also might be dead or maybe one generation past that. And the cemetery sometimes will try to contact the family because cemeteries by their business model uh, are having hard times. I mean, you figure out you've got a plot of land, you're going to divvy it up into X number of lots. You're going to sell those lots at whatever the cost is. And then that hopefully will raise up enough money. So there's a continuing fund to take care of the cemetery. But in these, changing times population has gone down uh, cremations have gone up uh, cemeteries are having a harder time so gerald lives and breathes cemeteries on halloween he even dresses up as a victorian undertaker and gives tours of them now i don't just honor the rich white anglo-saxon protestant businessmen because those are full of those i also find those that are sort of what i would call the underside of history to add a little bit more flavor to the story and years ago some woman at the end of the the two-hour tour said i just got a history lesson i didn't know it i said exactly because by using stories i not only conveyed the history but i made it interesting so it would stick in her head and realize that all those people are important in one way or another is there a story behind a particular headstone that has stuck with you wow there's a couple the grandson of one of our founders, his wife was having an affair with a minister, and ref- he, she refused to leave her husband for the minister, so instead the minister married her daughter. But in death, he's buried right behind her and not next to his wife. And I thought, okay, that's kind of creepy. Uh, wow. They're just normal headstones, but you have to know the story behind it. And here's another thing to think about. Remember that number I gave you in the beginning? 25,000 cemeteries in the whole country. Well, with so many, some people think they're in the way. Cemeteries can actually be relocated. That means digging up the remains, buying new coffins and headstones, and finding a new space. But in some cases, this practice has been egregiously carried out. Take this first story, for example. Binghamton, New York early 1900s. We had one sad situation. Inside the city of Binghamton, there was one they called the city cemetery. It was opened up in the 1830s, closed up around 1900, and they wanted the land for development. So they, in quotes, removed the bodies to a cemetery nearby called Glenwood Cemetery and paid this caretaker, this person to... He got paid for each body that he moved and to move the headstones. Well, if he found an arm, that was a body. If he found a leg, it's a body. Um, And then instead of paying attention to which body went with which headstones, he just picked up all the headstones, put them in one section, and according to him, he laid them out as they looked kind of pretty. So none of the headstones, as they are now, correspond to the actual people who are buried in the ground and we don't we don't know who they i mean we sort of know the names but it was just it was just a really bad removal incident 
that today uh, wouldn't be allowed. Does that happen a lot? I've never heard of cemeteries just being up and moved. Does that happen now today, and, and how do they do that? It doesn't happen as much today. I think, first of all, we've got actual cemetery laws on the books now, which deal more with that. Uh, you'd have, because depending on the type of remains, especially if there is any Native American remains, which kicks in a whole other series of federal regulations, but there are state, state regulations for their care. But it has happened in the past. It just happened recently. We had a, technically the town of Shenango, where I live in Broome County, has maintained this abandoned cemetery for years. It was up on top of a little knoll. I, I give them applause for dragging up lawnmowers and, and keeping it up. But the land was wanted for development. Not only on top of that, technically, they shouldn't have been maintaining it. It was a family plot. But everybody around knew, and technically the, the family still has the right to be buried there, and there was going to be a new supermarket going in. Well, rather than remove the people, the deal was the town refused to allow them. They, they unearthed all the remains, had all the remains put into new caskets. Uh, they took down the knoll and leveled it off, but they had – they had the Binghamton University Department of Archaeology there to monitor every step. Um, so at the cost of the supermarket developer, they had to buy caskets. They removed the headstones extremely carefully. They made maps of where they were located, and they built basically on the level ground. They rebuilt the cemetery with a, a nice cast iron fence around it. All the headstones were cleaned and replaced back in their original locations. Actually, they straightened up the rows. The last incident was there was a huge oak tree stuck in the middle. They found two bodies inside the tree. They found bodies inside the tree? The tree had come up out of the ground, and the bodies, the pine boxes they had been buried in in the 1830s and 40s had long disintegrated, and they found skeletal remains inside the tree. Wow. They had to carefully excise those and put them sort of back together and they've been reinterred in their right location. Um, so they, they spent, I'll be honest, the developer had to spend a great deal of money to recreate in much better order, I might add, the original family plot. So, I mean, do you think that, you know, in a way like death unites a lot of people and having these cemeteries around, although maybe people don't frequent them, it's kind of this realization that it's a physical marker in the world of like, this will happen and, you know, this is what it will be like. Yeah, I, and I think sometimes why people don't like those cemeteries because it's just a symbol of our own mortality. The, the old axiom that there's nothing certain except death and taxes. Well, that's true. <laughs> we know we're going to have pay taxes and we know we're going to die. Uh, and how... The taxes, we don't have as much control over death. Sometimes we do, and how we take care of that. And, and, you know, a lot of us, especially the historians across the state, have used cemeteries for walking tours and on certain days because it's, they're great history lessons. From what I've gathered, cemeteries are like a history textbook, but free and way more fun to read about. 
There are so many stories, dramas, and just weird coincidences that cemeteries should be like local green spaces, a place to relax, hang out with people, and maybe learn a thing or two. So next time you're in your car driving past one, maybe get out and walk around. Who knows? You could walk away feeling more alive than ever. For WICB News, I'm Jess Dresch. We end this fall season's Best of Ithaca Now with a lighthearted story from a couple of months ago. WICB correspondent Bronte Cook went to the local bookstore, Buffalo Street Books, for one of their unique events. It is called Drag Queen Story Hour, and it brings the glitz and glamour of drag into the daytime to give children a magical afternoon of storytelling. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon at the end of September. The Ithaca Commons is packed with people attending the town's annual Apple Harvest Festival, and there's a First People's Festival happening just down the street. But these festivals aren't the only exciting things happening in downtown Ithaca today. Just around the corner from the Commons, families are piling into Buffalo Street Books for the bookstore's monthly story time. It's not just any story time. It's a story time hosted by drag queens. I'm going to read a book called My Tree and Me, a book of seasons. It is... Throughout the last few years, drag queen story hours have become a national phenomenon. The first one was organized in 2015 by Michelle T. She's a queer author and activist in San Francisco. After having a child, she realized that a lot of children's events weren't LGBTQ inclusive. So she set off to create one that was. From there, it exploded. As of November 2018, there were 27 official chapters of the organization. There's even one in Tokyo, Japan. Buffalo Street Books began their Drag Queen Story Hour last August. After learning of the event's presence at libraries and bookstores across the country, they collaborated with local drag queens to bring it right here to Ithaca. And since then, it's been a hit. I will be reading All the Way to Be Smart by uh, Davina Bell. This is my first time at Drag Queen Story Hour. I'm sitting crisscross applesauce up against a bookshelf near the front of the room. In front of me, three drag queens, two of whom are regular monthly storytellers, begin to read. When he reached a mountain, Fausto said in a clear voice, Mountain, you are mine. No, <laughs> said the mountain. I am my own. That's Coraline Chardonnay. She performs drag at venues all over Ithaca and comes here every month to read to local kids. Day to day, he goes by David Isley. He teaches French and German to 7th and 8th graders at DeWitt Middle School, right here in Ithaca. For a mountain, a lake, a forest, a field, a tree, a sheep, and a flower were not enough for him. Coraline is engaging, theatrical, and incredibly entertaining. Around the room, the kids are transfixed by her storytelling. One of them is a five-year-old boy named Max. Him and his twin brother Grayson are curled up in their mom's laps. Over his graphic t-shirt and khaki pants, he's wearing a pretty white dress covered in blue and purple flowers. Max really likes to wear dresses, so we like to show him that it's totally normal. That's Casey Beck, one of Max's moms. She says being able to bring Max and Grayson to events like these really helps encourage the kids to be themselves in a world that isn't always accepting. 
just normalizing it and letting them know it's not just something they see on TV once in a while. It's everyday people. Even though they are big fans of RuPaul and Todrick, so. Casey's wife, PJ, says the Drag Queen Story Hour also helps get their kids excited about reading and provides an opportunity to get out and support the community. Just reading alone, I think, is really important and to get the kids into books. And I mean, there's always such the battle with screen time and things like that. These are this is our this is where we live. And these are our folks in our neighborhood. Just coming down and seeing some fabulous people is really awesome, too, especially. Max was a little bit too shy to talk to me about the story hour. His brother was shy, too. But his facial expressions and constant giggles throughout the reading told me he really felt at home. Coraline Chardonnay says helping kids feel comfortable and accepted is one of the primary purposes of the Drag Queen Story Hour, and it can really make a difference. Kids need to know that whatever they're feeling about themselves and how they identify is okay. Mm-hmm. And that it is absolutely, they should go out into the world and they should be who they are, shout it from the rooftop. And we're, I think we're finally hitting a point in history where it is becoming okay to do that. It's really heartwarming to see kids come in different outfits and expressions of themselves. It's really exciting. It brings a lot of visibility to the community, which I think is important. That's Tilia Cordata, one of the other drag queens. She says that today, safe spaces like this are really important because they help us work towards a more accepting, empathetic world. You fear what you don't know. So if kids grow up with this type of event, It's not unknown to them. The community, the connection is not some scary other. So hopefully they grow up more tolerant and loving of different communities that, you know, they're not necessarily a part of, or maybe they are, and they know where to go. They know where to find that family. For WICB News, I'm Bronte Cook. That is all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org news. And if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, subscribe to us on the iTunes podcast store and follow us on Spotify. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of television and radio operations, Jeremy Menard, our station manager, Peter Champelli, and our correspondents, Bronte Cook, Jess Dretch, Jay Bradley, and Sarah Herbakowitz. All of the music from our show comes from Dr. Dundiff, hailing from Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback for our show? Take our listener survey at WICB.org. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful holiday season. WICB News will be back with more episodes of Ithaca Now in February. I'm Bridget Bright. And thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.